So, uh, I know you all know this, but this year is a big anniversary year. Um, October 31st will be the 500th anniversary date of when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Cathedral. And I know you've already been gathering your party supplies and your fireworks for the big anniversary celebration. It's, it was October 31st, 1517, and so it'll, it'll happen on Halloween. So go ahead and get your costumes for your kids together <laughs> to celebrate this. Because truly, this was a consequential moment in our history and in the history of the world. Maybe you've heard of it before. It was this important reclaiming of the message and the mission of God in our world and of God's good news. See, these 95 Theses were Martin Luther's argument against a practice in some parts of the church in those days of saying that in order to really receive the forgiveness of God, you need to ask forgiveness of God And then ask forgiveness of the church. Like, come to my office and talk to me specifically in those ways. You need to ask God and the church, which wasn't exactly how Jesus (laughs) laid it out, right? Even more, the church had this great new fundraising campaign back in those days of selling these forgiveness coupons called indulgences, which is a great name and like great marketing. (laughs) You want to buy some indulgences. If you want to be forgiven, you could buy one of these and pull out a coupon whenever you needed a little forgiveness and use it. And so if you had a big weekend plan, just stock up on them. Um, They were like a get-out-of-jail-free card, kind of literally sometimes back in those days, which is a great fundraising strategy, but so far from the message of Jesus and the way of Jesus. So 500 years ago, Martin Luther wrote this blog post listicle, these 95 theses, and nailed it to the door of the cathedral in town because there was no Facebook to post it on. Um, The actual full title of the theses in German is, um, you'll never believe these 95 surprising ways your church is contradicting Jesus by Martin Luther, uh, 1597. And he got a lot of likes and he changed history Uh, in the process. Just don't read the comment section. Never read the comment section. So we joke, but but this was the beginning of what we call the Reformation, Uh, when the church was undergoing, as it always is, but intensely in this time, this refining process of reforming, of being transformed. It was not easy, but it was important. And it was from this moment that the Protestant churches began, literally named after protesters, was birthed which 200 years later, we stand in the stream of that as Methodists. This was our kind of prequel as well. At the heart of the Reformation was this little Latin phrase, sola fide, sola fide, faith alone. Not forgiveness from God and from the church. And it was an answer to the question, how do I become right with God? How did God and I get square? Is it an inward choice, or do I have to do something? Do I have to love God and be a monk or a missionary or complete a mission to Mordor in order to receive God's favor? Is it faith alone, or is it faith in God plus something? Something I have to do to earn it. And the answer from the Reformers was simple. Sola fide, faith alone. And so at the time of Martin Luther, this was an important, important reformation in Christian theology and in our story and in our practice as well. And it's important for us to remember this today, too, because oftentimes we have this tendency to add stuff to the good news of God, to add conditions to the gospel, conditions to God's love. 
um, making the love of God something that you have to earn. And so the message becomes, God loves you. But if you really want to be loved by God, then read your Bible every day. Raise perfect kids. Become something you're not. Stop eating Cheetos. You know, don't watch Game of Thrones. Only watch Veggie Tales. Um, exercise to keep your body healthy, but not enough to be vain. This is our story, and on and on. Even if we don't speak it, somehow there's this expectation that there's a class of kind of Christians and super Christians along the way. It's faith plus works. But Martin Luther and others who followed and went before him reminded us that God loves you, period. Without condition or addition or earning or evaluation, with infinite love, God loves you so incredibly much that there is nothing you have to do to make God love you more, and there's nothing that you can do to make God love you, love you less. God loves you, and there's this invitation to experience that love, to find our identity in it, to trust in it, to have faith in it, alone, sola fide. It's such an incredible, important reformation. And their favorite verses of the Reformers back in those days were places like Ephesians chapter 2, where it says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. The author of Ephesians writes, and boom, It's the sound of Martin Luther nailing the theses to the wall and dropping the mic, and that is beautiful. But it makes it kind of confusing. (laughs) Because this summer we're journeying through the book of James. And as we're reading through this book, in the next verses that we come across in our story, James says this. What good is it? This is beginning in chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, If you say you have faith and do not have works, can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead record scratch. (laughs) Awkward, right? Because it seems at first glance like this just might be the exact opposite (laughs) of what Ephesians said and how the reformers understood that verse at least. Like it even literally says, faith by itself, sola fide. Awkward, right? Did we just discover that the Bible contradicts itself? Um, like, we have to stop doing this open thing, and we need to lock the doors and change our name to close and, and say, you know, sorry, we're not doing this anymore. And ter- I, I would say turn out the lights, but we've already done that. So, um, you know, what, what, what's going on here? Okay, no. <laughs> of course not. We don't need to keep doing this. The Bible has a story to tell us. So let's breathe for just a second and take a step back. The early church knew Paul, from whom came Ephesians. And they knew James, from whom came James. And James and Paul knew each other, and they worked together, and they endorsed each other's work. They wrote blurbs for each other's books, I think. They don't seem to have been particularly bothered by this conversation. In fact, they were interested in having it. 
So what's going on here? <laughs> Let's take a step back from this. Let's take a step back. And remember that there are many voices in Scripture. This is a book compiled by communities and written by authors over thousands of years. And in the course of this compilation, there are many different voices, and sometimes they focus on different aspects of the truth or of wisdom or of life, and they emphasize different things. And so it's important to think about these in the same way that we think about the wonder that we have two eyes, and they're each slightly separated from each other in perspective and in focus, but taking together the difference gives us depth perception. It's this dialectical way that these two perspectives help us see more fully the depth and the complexity and the beauty of a subject. So it's the same way with Paul and with James. They separate slightly in their emphases to help us see with more depth. And the two perspectives are something like this. Ephesians 2 says, faith makes you alive apart from works. And James says, faith that is alive works for love. And both of those voices are true. It's both and. And we have to hear and include both of those perspectives in our faith journey. Even more, I think that that James intentionally uses that language of faith and works as he writes this to spur the conversation and in some way to reform and correct a flattened perspective of faith and one that Paul himself was wrestling with in the churches that he was in relationship with and one that we continue to wrestle with in our world as well. And it's that flattened perspective that says that faith is simply a mental assent to some proposition, uh, an answer to a true and false question about Jesus or about heaven, and that's it. And that it doesn't have to affect the way you live or the way you love. Uh, I grew up in the Baptist tradition, and this was everywhere. We called this kind of faith fire insurance, (laughs) believe it or not, because we were silly, and that's pretty silly. But Paul himself pushed back against this over and over and over again in his writings. There's this great verse from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning, just living without love and life in our hearts because of the grace, this incredible, infinite grace of God? By no means, he says. Um, Which in English translation makes him sound a bit like the dowager from Downton Abbey. By no means. Um, But in Greek, this was serious. Paul says, meganoito, which literally means, heck no. But Paul uses, it actually is more severe than that, but I I just can't do it. (laughs) Heck no. The way we live matters, Paul says. And we know that. And that's the reason that this passage in James resonates with us. Because we know that a superficial vision of faith is, is empty. And some of us, and we've heard religion talk a lot about this life-changing reality, but we look around and we see a world that, that still needs the change that love can bring. We know that faith should matter in how we live, and that the radical, unconditional love of God should show up in our love as well, because faith that is alive loves. We're not just saved from thing, from something or from thing. we're saved for something or for something. Um, We're saved for a way of life, of compassion, of justice, 
of devotion and worship, of joy and meaning and purpose for a way of life that is encapsulated in love. That's why Jesus didn't just call his disciples believers. He called them disciples, apprentices who were to live and love and learn from him how to live and love God and neighbor just like Jesus does in faith that is alive, as James says, loves. So John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said this. He said, there's no holiness without social holiness. There's no transformation of ourself without transforming the way we treat the world around us. And as James said, faith without works is like a body without a spirit. It's a shell. So I know what you're thinking at this point. Like, this could get kind of guilty, right? Are, are we saying that if we don't do stuff, if we don't work, that God's going to, like, break up with us? Is that what this is about? Like, we're going to come to church next week, and we're going to find a note from God on our, on our seat, and we'll open it up, and it's like, Dear Jonathan, it's not me, it's you. Um, I'm God, after all. It can't be me. <laughs> I hope we can still be friends. Love God. No, 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 no. And that's why we need both perspectives. That's where the amazing perspective of faith as sola fide comes in. Because we're reminded by that, that God loves us no matter what. God does not give up on us or quit on us or get tired of us. God loves you, period. Apart from any works that you've done or could do because of who you are as a child of God, dearly beloved and called, colorfully and beautifully made. Scripture describes faith, relationship with God, like a covenant of love, like a a marriage covenant that we trust in and rest in and find our identity and our purpose in, and we join our life with God in love. But the amazing thing about how Scripture presents this covenant is that in human marriages, right, we might give up when someone stops picking up their socks, um, you know, or or stops mowing the lawn on a regular basis. That's me. Um, Makes mistakes or just is dumb. But God never gives up. God's love, because it's God's covenant to us, is unconditional and unwavering. And even when we stumble and we're not loving in our lives and we walk away, as the Methodist community liturgy says, when we turned away and our love failed, your love, God, remained steadfast. That God holds us up in love when we can't hold up ourselves, and we can't hold up our end of the bargain, God loves us no matter what. Sola fide. That's the perspective and the promise of our faith. But there's more to the promise. Because God wants more than anything else for our life to be good and beautiful and alive and full of joy. God wants us to trust in things that bring us joy, to live for things that last, to love with a love that transforms and heals the world. God wants us to be fully alive in the depth of our spirit and the truth of who we are. And as James says, faith that is alive works for love, and God wants that for us and is at work in us to help bring it about. And that's what happens when we begin to look at these two perspectives together. Faith makes you alive apart from works, but faith that is alive works for love. And when we take these two things together, 
the depth of life with God becomes in clearer focus. The thesis and the antithesis joined together in synthesis, and what these two things together tell us is that this story is about God's work in us, that God is at work in us to make us alive through faith and to make our faith alive through love. And the second part of the promise of faith is that God loves us, loves you so much that God is at work in you right now to help you become who you were built to be, to wake us up to God's love for us and to wake us up to our call to love our neighbor as ourself. And even more than that, to enable and empower us to do it more and better, to love as we've been loved, to learn to be disciples of Christ, to be awoken and to stay woke in this sleepy world. So there's two, some two church words for these perspectives. And I know it's summertime, but we're going to talk about them today because um, we're going to need them for the open spelling bee a little bit later on. So pay attention here. <laughs> the first word is justification. J-U-S. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> justification. Right? This is the part of our faith journey where we realize God's profound love for us no matter what, expressed in the person and the sacrificial love of Jesus, and we trust our life in that. By love, we're reconciled to God, justified. Our relationship is at peace and made right with God. Some call this the first half of the gospel, and I think that's helpful. The second word in the second half of the story is a word called sanctification. And this is the part of the journey that's often overlooked along the way, but the one that's being lifted up and focused on by James here. Sanctification is, comes from the word, you know, sanctify, to make holy, to make true, to be perfected in love. And it's about growing in the love and the spirit of Christ, learning how and being able to love like Christ, cooperating in what God is doing in our life. John Wesley said this, sanctification is being perfected in love until every thought and action that flows from us is love for God and neighbor and ourself. Justification is being right with God, but sanctification is learning to love like God. But every step of the way, God's love undergirds us and enables us and calls us and compels us forward. And we realize that all of this, these two perspectives, justification and sanctification, faith and love and works of love, is part of our faith journey. These two perspectives paint a deeper picture of life alive with God. And we see it reflected in our life, in our story, and throughout Scripture. This beautiful picture of what God is up to in us and in our world. Okay, so here's a terrible analogy. Are you ready? Uh, Every analogy for God is terrible uh, in its own way, but this one is um, particularly terrible, so I just want to warn you in that. Are you ready? Life with God is like water skiing. See, I told you it was bad. (laughs) Justification is that moment when the boat pulls us up on top of the water. It's awesome, and it's powerful, and it's full of water spraying everywhere, and it changes our whole trajectory. Sanctification is learning to ski, right? Getting confident in our skis, venturing outside the wake, and eventually beginning to move and to dance with confidence and create beauty as we move through the water to come alive. And sometimes we fall and wipe out, but we know how to get back up and start again. But every step of the journey 
all along the way, it's the power of the boat that's pulling us along and enabling our adventure. It's just that in this case, unlike when my dad drives a ski boat, God's not trying to sling us off the... Off, <laughs> Of the tube. I hope, I hope my dad's watching the video of this. Um, Paul himself wrote, as, as Crystal share and Hannah share with us today, for in Christ Jesus, the only thing that counts is faith working in love. It's God's hope for us that our faith would begin to work itself out in love, that we would grow and work in love and dance and come alive and venture beyond the wake that that's what matters in our life. And so how do we venture out? How do we get more confident on our skis and start to overcome and experience life? It's important to remember that, that grace is always opposed to earning. We don't have to earn God's love, but it thrives in effort as we cooperate with God's love to learn and to grow. So we're Methodists here, and Methodists were called Methodists because they were ridiculously methodical about sanctification, about growing in love. And so John Wesley had these things he called means of grace, ways to grow in God on our journey. It's like if if grace were a powerful river, it's the things that help us step into the flow of that river or pull on the ski rope. I've got to to refine that analogy a little bit. Um, So Wesley wanted us to be balanced in life, and so he presented four areas of these means of grace. Acts of devotion, that's our meditation and our prayer and our study, these private disciplines. Acts of worship, the things we do when we gather together and stand before the transcendent God and open our hearts to the God of faith. But it doesn't stop there. Other means of grace are acts of compassion, the kindness and mercy we live out in our world toward others, and acts of justice. Because as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, we're not simply to bandage the wounds of the victims who've been caught under the wheels of injustice. We're to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. When we look at this, it gives us a balanced picture of the life with God and a way to think about how to step into the flow of God's grace all around us. And they align perfectly in love of God, devotion and worship, and love of neighbor. And so think about your life and ask how we're balancing and living out in the means of grace. You know, are we growing in a balanced way or are we skipping leg day and, and working on one area and not the other? But as we live these out, as we step into the stream of God's love, we cooperate with grace, we get confident on our skis, we grow and we become more like Christ in love. And so the reason that James says such definitive voice and perspective in this conversation. The reason he's so serious and passionate about this is because the call of God's love to devotion and worship and compassion and justice in our world is high. God's grace and love is free, but it's not cheap. The way of Christ's radical love will not let us off cheaply. It calls us higher and farther than we can ever go in our own strength into the margins, toward the messes, toward those who are marginalized, beyond our strength. But that's the point. Because we were built to live not in our own strength, but in the flow of that powerful stream of God's love and God's Spirit empowering our life, joining our justified life with the sanctifying power of God's love, the mercy that triumphs, the love 
that wins. It's the power of life that we're called to live in. And so when we step into that stream to start to come alive to love and to life with God, we come more alive than we ever imagined. Because if James says that faith without works is dead, then the flip side is, is that faith that is at work in love is alive. And as we grow, you'll be more alive than ever because it's what our souls and ourselves were built to do. So I said that Ephesians chapter 2 was the Reformer's favorite section of Scripture, the heart of this story. Um, But I kind of intentionally stopped reading at verse 9. And sorry, sorry. I want us to keep on going and read that again and hear this voice. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, says verse 4, even when we were dead through our trespasses and made alive together with Christ— For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of work, so that no one may boast. And then it keeps going in verse 10. And it says, For we are God's workmanship. God is at work in us. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. In this verse are both perspectives together. The faith that makes us alive that we could not do on our own and the good works that we could not do alone that we're called into as our way of life because it's in being loved and in loving as we've been loved that we come truly alive to our way of life. Alive with depth, with beauty, in the power of God's incredible love. We don't come alive by being perfect, but by being perfected in love. Not by earning love, but by learning how to love like Christ. That's our faith journey. And here, as a community at Open, this is our journey as well. So we lift high the unconditional love of God we always seek to be working it out and living it out in the specific conditions of our community. The love of God is available to all as a free gift that offers us everything, but it invites us in response to offer everything we are in love. Deep faith and radical love. Deep faith and radical love in the power of God. We'll nail that thesis to our wall in word and in works. That's to be our way of life. And when we do that, when we do it together, when you do it in the places where you work and you go and you serve and you be, when we live that out, you and me and us together will come alive, more alive than we ever thought possible because we're empowered by the incredible love of God. And this community around us will come alive as well. This is our calling, and this is the promise of our faith, rooted in love, transformed by love, that we might transform the world. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for this story, for the beauty of it and the complexity of it. God, the depth of this. 
God, that in love, by faith, you make us alive. But you don't stop there. Even more than that, God, you awaken us to a faith that comes alive in love. And so help us, God, this afternoon, on Monday, as we go back to school, as we go back to work. God, to step into your stream of grace, to grab hold of the ski rope and to to take a step of courage beyond the wake to express your love in new places with new people in new ways. God, this is beyond our strength, but that's exactly where we were built to live, in your strength, God. Help us cooperate with you. Help us to grow. Help us to be your people, transformed by your love. We pray this in your name. Amen.